Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Today, we talk about hair and identity, in particular, black hair, its history in the United States, discrimination around black hair, and why you shouldn't touch someone's hair on the playground. Okay, so I am super interested in today's episode, and Sarah, I can't wait to get into this discussion around hair. And as the parent of a multiracial child, this is... It's not my biggest pet peeve, but it's up there when someone just walks over at like the park or wherever I am with my kids. And my kids have two very different types of hair, like my older son, who is half black, quarter Asian, quarter white, has he keeps his hair very short. He goes to the barber with his dad every three weeks. But my younger son doesn't want anyone touching his hair and he has these kind of crazy curls and for whatever reason it has not been isolated to a single time when someone comes up to him at the park and you know is talking to me and puts their hand on my kid's head and my first reaction is and I haven't always been great about this I think when it started happening I froze because I was like what the hell is going on why are you touching my kid and but then I was listening and Sarah's like, you can't see that she's laughing because she can totally picture this all an internal monologue. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like trying to keep my face as neutral as possible. And I was thinking about why this was so like such a visceral thing for me. And it was because this was a way because the comments that were coming out of other parents mouths or other mothers mouths mostly were, you know, talking about how his hair was so different or how they had never felt hair like that before or oh, like this hair is so interesting. And all these words were sort of used to make my child the other, right? And we live in a predominantly white area and he's already looks different. So the the words and the comments and the fact that, you know, she's coming over to touch my child's hair all sort of reinforce that. And to me, like it just smacked of something that I couldn't even understand fully. Well, and to put it in context, when I was in Japan with my daughter who has lighter brown hair, and she's, you know, three quarters white, a quarter Asian. So she, you know, very much passes as white in Japan, though, was the other. And we were in a place where a man actually went out of his way to track her down and start stroking her hair. And my brothers immediately put up this block, like we were all traveling as a family together to visit for a funeral out there. And It felt so threatening as a parent of a child having your hair touched and being made to feel other. And that's even without the history of like the black history and the otherness that you feel here in the United States. And for what it's worth, I did ask a friend of mine who's a white woman and has very, very, very curly hair. I said, do people ever come up to you and touch your hair? I was wondering in the context of this episode, how much of it is curiosity about curly hair? How much of it is... A racial thing and an other thing like our gut feel says it is and she completely supported the no she said yes people touch my hair but the difference is they ask me every single time mm. and i've seen it in front of my face people will just go and touch the curly hair of someone of a person of color but for me they ask my permission first it's fascinating right because i i think and that really touches on how connected hair is to your identity And I think there is such a complicated history of hair. And in particular, as you noted, Sarah, with history in this country and in particular, black history and black hair. Um, So, you know, 
And we looked at some great resources in preparing for this podcast, including this book, Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America, and an amazing website, Thirsty Roots, about black hair. But there has been a long history of black hair as being considered inferior and the other in this country. You know, back in the 1400s, Europeans who had gone to Africa noticed these elaborate hairstyles, including locks and plates and twists that were just fantastic. But when those individuals were brought to America as slaves, that hair became dehumanizing, basically. Like white people would call black hair wool. They couldn't retain these elaborate hairstyles anymore. By the 1800s, there was a definite discrepancy related to hair. Lighter-skinned, straight-haired slaves command higher prices at slave auctions than darker, more, quote, kinky-haired, unquote, ones. And internalizing this color consciousness, even Black people in that time period promoted the ideas that Black with dark skin and kinky hair are less attractive and worth less. So from there, even though in 1865, slavery ended technically, kind of, but <laughs> and we'll talk about that more. But whites looked upon, there was sort of a socialization and a marginalization that happened. Whites looked upon black women who styled their hair like white women as well-adjusted. Quote, good hair became a prerequisite for entering certain schools, churches, social groups, and business networks. So the takeaway there was, if you didn't have hair like white women, you weren't going to be accepted and you couldn't get go into even certain places. So, and that's kind of continued today, this, this belief or this, I guess, view that the natural hair of women of color is unprofessional, unkept, or in some way not to be considered neutral. And even as recently as 2016, a study found that there was an overwhelming bias in favor of smoother hair types and against natural ones, which leaves black women really vulnerable to discrimination. Oh, totally. Well, and of course, you know, in a capitalistic society, what was there to be done but build businesses on the back of this trend in black hair. In 1880, metal hot combs, or I guess they were invented by the French in 1845, but they were readily available in the United States, which is, you know, really heated and used to press and temporarily straighten curly hair. And then... That sounds painful. Right? Like, I mean, doesn't sound like it'd be really fun to do. So... On top of that, then you have this, in the 1900s, Madam C.J. Walker developed a range of hair care products for black hair, and she popularized this press and curl style. And, you know, when you mentioned earlier that there was this shift to being acceptable in white society, some people criticize her for encouraging black women to look white. Notably, Walker is featured in the Guinness Book of World Records as the first American female self-made millionaire. And she was black, which I think is so fascinating about this story. Especially Um, at that time, right? Yeah, yeah. So come to more contemporary times. And by 2006, black hair care is a billion-dollar industry. In Style, you know, the magazine In Style, they did a nationwide survey, and they found that black women spend, on average, $1,114 a year on hair products and treatments, and 23% of women get their hair relaxed By 2017, they basically are saying that nine times more was spent on ethnic, quote, ethnic hair. So it's like $473 million. And beauty products, which is $1.1 billion, is spent on beauty per year compared to their non-black counterparts. I mean, if you think about the money in that is crazy. That's so much money. 
Yeah. And even compared to white hair, I guess, is for lack of a better term, or like the other hair. I don't even know what the non-black hair, like, generalization is, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that along with the pressure to have straight hair and to sort of assimilate into what the white female standard for beauty was, right? There's also been a movement that recognizes black hair and more natural black hair as a social statement, right? right? And even as early as in the 1920s, Marcus Garvey, a black nationalist, urged followers to embrace their natural hair and reclaim that aesthetic that those European traders noticed in the 1400s in Africa. In 1970, Angela Davis became an icon of black power with her large afro. But in this one, I just like we were talking about this pre-recording. This reporter, Melva Tolliver, is fired in 1971 from the ABC affiliate in New York for wearing an afro while covering Trisha Nixon's wedding at the White House. I mean, mean, that's crazy because that's right after everyone's like, oh, segregation, you know, we're all civil rights. I mean, everything. Yeah. Has just right? been happening. And, I, and so then in 1971. Yeah. I mean, amazing. So then in 1977, the Jerry Curl comes into the black hair scene and it's billed sort of as a curly perm for blacks, also immortalized in songs forever. But then by 1979, the movie 10 comes out. And this is when braids and beads cross the color line because there's that scene with Bo Derek and she's got her hair in cornrows and Bo Derek is quite obviously white. I think from that point forward, there's been a definite shift in parallel with the pressure to straighten your hair and look more white towards others who really believe in reclaiming black hair with celebrities like Solange Knowles, Viola Davis, Gabrielle Union, and more proudly showcasing those natural hairstyles in songs, on the red carpet. I think you've got very obvious advocates for social and racial justice like Lupita Nyong'o and Colin Kaepernick have been known to wear their hair in more natural or even Afro styles. And I think that that harkens back to sort of the civil rights era where that natural hair was a sign of black power and black resistance. I mean, so it's clear there is a thing around black hair. It's not like there is a history to it and an incredibly big business to be made on it. There is a statement to be made with black hair. And I think the time back to sort of your natural inclination to be like, yes, but it makes me uncomfortable when people touch like and use my, you know, touch my kid's head is because hair is also, there's so many cases like you just mentioned before, but like discrimination and hair can really emphasize this sense of other Right. I mean, the research that we've come up with in all these cases, there's, you know, I mean, you go through this. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, my gosh, yeah. there's so much. I know there is. There's a huge list. And we pulled this from InStyle, same magazine that talked about, you know, the beauty of black hair and the business behind black hair. But under Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, employers are allowed to enforce dress code and appearance policies that include the regulation of hair. So the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, which enforces these laws, states that employers can impose rules calling for neutral hairstyles, which have to be applied to everyone equally, regardless of race. But sometimes this is actually backfired and can be used as a weapon against people of color. So we pulled some examples of this. For example, in the military, Army Regulation 670-1 has 
in recent years be, sparked a backlash because of its prejudicial policing of specifically black hair. So the 2014 version of that regulation actually outright banned service people from wearing dreadlocks and cornrows, among other popular black hairstyles, which many saw as an effort to sort of whitewash the army. And this I found is super hard to believe because in the document itself, and remember this is 2014, people believed that the language used was racially biased because it shockingly described dreadlocks as, quote, unkept and matted, unquote, claiming it demonstrated little to no attempt on the U.S. military's party, military's part to understand black hair, the way it grows and how it's styled. So after months of backlash about this document, changes were later made to authorize some prohibited women's hairstyles. So in 2017, the most recent edition of this regulation permits braids, cornrows, twists, and locks for service women. So even then, there are restrictions against them. So it restricts the diameter, the, how they should be uniform, and they should present a, quote, neat, professional, and well-groomed appearance, unquote. It goes on to stipulate that any that protrude up or out from the head are prohibited. Once again, still not understanding how black hair grows. <laughs> I'm like, what? How is that a I know. thing? Yeah. So, I mean, and even listening to those words, right, those words neat, professional and well-groomed have often been weaponized against the black community because those are subjective terms, right? What is neat? What is professional? That's really up to the observer. And that leaves black people at a risk of discrimination, you know, because who's your observer? Unbelievably, you know, it took a year for the U.S. Navy to follow suit as it did finally in July of 2018 to finally permit dreadlocks, braids, larger buns and ponytails for service women. But servicemen are still prohibited from wearing all of these hairstyles, unbelievably. That's interesting, though white men would not be allowed to wear long hair. Am I correct? I think not under these. They couldn't wear dreads, braids, larger buns, none of that. Could they wear their Um, hair loose? That's what I'm just wondering, because every military person I met who's white usually has the short haircut, too. So maybe that's just the next step is, okay. so those are two separate parts, maybe, of black hairstyles for women and dealing with that. And then gender is like a whole other beast, as we know, in the military, because now there's all the transgender stuff going. I mean, there's just a whole host of conversations about gender disparity in any of the military in the United States. Yes, I think that, you know, the military obviously has a long way to go, right, on parity on a whole host of levels. I think that a lot of the backlash came from how they characterized traditionally or typically black hairstyles as opposed to the actual, I mean, the subjectivity of banning them or how they could appear was one thing, but how they referred to them, people were like, whoa, that's ridiculous and racist. Yes. But that's not the only example. And let's talk about the workplace. Oh, right. Uh, So yeah, 2010, Chastity Jones, who was a black dreadlocked Alabama woman, reportedly had her job offer withdrawn solely because of her hair. And this is according to Vox, where we found this article, but she had been offered a customer service role at the call center of Catastrophe Management Solutions in Alabama. But after that, a white HR manager allegedly told her she would have to get rid of her dreads, claiming they, quote, tend to get messy and violated the company's grooming standards. And when she wouldn't, the company refused to hire her. So... 
The company, CMS, the grooming policy stated employees must have a presentable image and it banned excessive hairstyles. And again, like you mentioned before, it's all about interpretation, right? It's subjective. What is an excessive hairstyle? What is the person doing the interview going to interpret as an excessive hairstyle? So the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, is that right? EEOC, Mm -hmm. took up this case on Jones's behalf, but they lost the appeal in 2014, which is... Unfortunate, the federal court dismissed it, citing a hairstyle, even one more closely associated with a particular ethnic group, is a mutable characteristic, and therefore it didn't explicitly break federal anti-discrimination law. So she can't appeal anymore, right? In May of 2018, the appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court was denied, and it really reinforces the harmful biases and continues to grant companies the legal right to police and discriminate against black hair. And I have a person, hopefully, who will agree to talk about this experience in our next episode, or one of the next future episodes of his firsthand experience in the workplace, having a very different financial set of transactions on the business front based solely on his hair. So I'm really curious to hear that first person account, and hopefully that'll all get pulled together soon. Yeah, me too. I think that workplace and that discrimination is terrible. And it's almost more heartbreaking when it comes to school, I think, because that's when you're dealing with discrimination against kids. I know. So in 2013, Tiana Parker, who was seven years old at the time, was banned from wearing her hair in dreadlocks at her Oklahoma charter school. According to the local news outlet, KOKI-TV, Parker's father, who is actually a barber, was told by school officials from the Deborah Brown Community School in Tulsa that his daughter's hairstyle wasn't, quote, presentable and felt that her hair could quote, distract from the respectful and serious atmosphere the school strives for. Yes, she's seven. So, uh, you know, first or second grade, I'm sure, is a whole host of chaos. So yet another example of black hair being policed because of the stereotype that it's unkept, right? Tiana's parents later removed her from the school, good on them. Following the incident, the school came under fire for its outright ban on, quote, dreadlocks, afros, and other faddish styles, as stated in its handbook with a heavy eye roll there. Hmm. Faddish, Um, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Because that's, I mean, how tone deaf do you have to be if your school policy is calling hairstyles that have been popular methods of styling black hair for years, centuries as faddish, right? It's racially insensitive. It's discriminatory as that really singles out black people. The school has since updated its policy and removed any reference to particular hairstyles, apparently. But that does not mean that Tiana's scenario was a unique one. In 2017, 17-year-old Genesis Johnson, who had an afro, was told by her teacher at her Tallahassee, Florida school that her, quote, hair needed to be fixed and that it's, quote, not neat and needs to be put in a style, That's what she told the local news outlet in Tallahassee. Two days later, the 11th grade student was called into the assistant principal's office, she said, where she was reportedly told that her afro was extreme and faddish and out of control. There's that word again. Genesis told, and this part just broke my heart. Genesis told the local paper that she was already cognizant of her hair at school. In every class, I sit in the back so it wouldn't cause a distraction, she said that can you imagine i mean your perception is that your hair worn how you were born with your hair is going to be so distracting that you need to sit in the back no i mean that's ridiculous i mean if it's a height issue people can't see behind you what are you going to do for the tall kid are all the tall kids supposed to sit in the back of the classroom like it just seems 
And these examples go on. I mean, I think in social media, there was another case, a wrestler, a male wrestler who was forced to shave off his dreads by the, I think the ref was oh, just basically, remember that? that? heartbreaking. And yeah. like, what? Like, it happens and it's happening to children. I think that is happening to anybody is awful. But like going back school. to, yeah, I mean, going back to Hera's identity, right? This is what you are having people who you trust to educate you and people that you look up to telling you that there's something wrong with who you are fundamentally and that you are less than and that you are the other, right? And so right. many different. Right. And again, going back to our conversation we had about microaggressions, all of these things, I mean, they're not even micro, right? These are just outward commentary and making you feel other and self-conscious and all of those things out of ignorance because people are not aware Right. Basically, people aren't aware that according to these things, it seems pretty clear people who wrote these policies do not know how black hair grows, how it is in its natural form, the history of it, the variety, the effort it takes to style, maintain all of it. Right. I mean, so many more conversations to be had. I really hope we can provide some first person looks at the complexities around black hair in a later episode. Yeah, but for right now, our takeaway is read about this. Think about how you view different hairstyles. Chris Rock made an amazing documentary called Good Hair. Watch that. I did. It taught me a lot, and I thought I knew a whole bunch. I didn't. Think about your own biases. And as a mother of a multiracial child, please do not touch the hair ask permission and talk to the parents first before you reach out that hand. I know it might be super fascinating, but please think about how you are making that child and that family feel. Just my ask. I love that. Absolutely. <laughs> if you love what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review while you're at it. Also, if you're looking for some great email, who isn't, sign up on our website, dearwhitewomen.com, and get our weekly email every Wednesday that gives you special bonus insider tips. You can also find us on social media. Sarah, can you tell us where to find? Absolutely. On Facebook and Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast, and on Twitter at DWW Podcast. Find us there.